Beast Watch News, watching the rising beast of Revelation. In this week's report, I'll have some Kabad news and an analysis of the increasing tensions surrounding Temple Mount. I'll have an analysis from Russia that could reveal a huge problem for Israel. Also, news from Syria. But first, Iran. Is Iran really doing all that Prime Minister and now Michael Oren is accusing it of? Ex-envoy to the U.S. Michael Oren from Israel has stepped up to help Netanyahu foment a distraction aimed mostly at the Israelis by using Iran. Now before I get into this, please understand that I am not about to defend Iran. That nation is the head of the 4 plus 1 coalition, which I believe is the end times king of the north in Daniel 11. What I'm about to explain, though, is how Benjamin Netanyahu is playing with fire using the Iran threat for political and religious purposes. In chilling detail this week, Michael Oren warned of an Israel-Iran conflagration in the Atlantic.com. The article says, Former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., Michael Oren, has described in chilling detail how a conflict between Israel and Iran could easily be sparked and descend into a massive conflagration devastating Israel and other countries in the region. Israel is already girding for a war with the Islamic Republic and has carried out hundreds of strikes against Iran-linked targets in Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. A single miscalculation during one of those airstrikes could draw attention, or retaliation rather, by Iran, Oren wrote in a column published in the Atlantic on Monday. Oren described what would happen in the event of a war with Iran, saying Israel would be paralyzed if Iranian missiles hit Israel. If rockets fall near Ben-Gurion Airport, it will close international traffic. Israel's ports, through which a major portion of its food and essential supplies are imported, may also shut down, and its electrical grids could be severed. Iran has honed its hacking tools in recent years, and Israel, though a world leader in cyber defense, cannot entirely protect its vital utilities. Millions of Israelis would huddle in bomb shelters. Hundreds of thousands would be evacuated from border areas that terrorists are trying to infiltrate. The restaurants and hotels would be empty, along with the offices of the high-tech companies of the startup nation. The hospitals, many of them resorting to underground facilities, would quickly be overwhelmed, even before the skies darken with toxic fumes of blazing chemical factories and oil refineries. Israel would, of course, respond. Its planes and artillery would return fire, and the IDF would mobilize. More than twice the size of the French and British armies combined, at least on paper, the IDF can call up equipment and deploy tens of thousands of seasoned reservists in less than 24 hours. But where would it send them? Most of the rockets would be launched from southern Lebanon, 
where the launchers are embedded in some 200 villages. Others would be fired from Gaza, where Hamas and Islamic Jihad, both backed by Iran, have at least 10,000 rockets, but longer-range missiles, including the deadly Shahab-3, would reach Israel from Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and Iran itself. This presents a daunting challenge to the Israeli Air Force, which does not possess strategic bombers capable of reaching Iran and must grapple with the advanced Russian anti-aircraft weapons situated in Syria. Israeli ground troops would be forced to move into Lebanon and Gaza, house to house, while special forces would be dispatched deep within Syria and Iraq. Israel's own conventional missiles would devastate Iranian targets. Well, this description is horrifying and frightening, is it not? But did you notice that Oren's statements are based on possible scenarios with no mention of intelligence reports verifying that Iran is now in attack mode? Oren's statements come after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made two announcements last week. One was that he is now the Diaspora Affairs Minister. The second was that Iran is moving weaponry around in preparation for a missile attack on Israel. Netanyahu, who is also Israel's defense minister, has put the IDF on high alert in the north. This action is more for validating his claims, I believe, that money needs to be funneled from the private sector to the military than the result of any intelligence on the movement or plans of Iran. Michael Oren further stated that a war with Iran could be started because of hundreds of strikes against Iran-linked targets in Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq that have been carried out by Israel. Israel is girding for the worst, he says, and acting on the assumption that fighting could break out at any time. And it's not hard to imagine how it might arrive. The conflagration, like so many in the Middle East, could be ignited by a single spark. And then he says, Israeli fighter jets. It's the Israeli fighter jets that could ignite this thing with a single spark, folks. Israeli fighter jets have already conducted hundreds of bombing raids against Iranian targets in Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. In Oren's statements, there was no mention of intelligence reports saying Iran was making any such moves against Israel currently. The last Iranian move was in August, according to this article, when Iran planned for a drone attack from Syria, which was aborted at the last minute by an Israeli airstrike. Look, no doubt Iran is hot to destroy Israel and has made threatening statements again recently, as is Tehran's continual habit for decades. In fact, Iran stated again just a couple of weeks ago that it will only take 20 to 30 minutes to decimate Israel. Yet, there is more to this warmongering by Netanyahu against Iran in Israel that anything Iran is doing 
at the moment. Netanyahu is doing it. Benjamin Netanyahu has effectively used the Iran threat against Israel to progress his agendas since the mid-2000s decade. Why is he doing such great fear-mongering over Iran now without some kind of evidence? Well, first, Israel is headed into a third round of elections. And he may be counting his Iran fervor and those preemptive airstrikes, budget changes, and keeping the IDF on high alert to help keep him in office. Politicians believe a scared population is less likely to want a change in leadership. Second, Iran fervor, like I said last week, justifies the funneling of money to the military. Funneling money to the military, though, will provide cover for the funding of other agendas, such as working to bring more Jews from the diaspora, which he is now the new minister of diaspora affairs, and the building of the temple. Third, and this may be a very important reason, as long as the IDF is on high alert, it is ready to ascend to Temple Mount for war against the Palestinians and Jordan. And fourth, Netanyahu may be hoping to deflect attention from the current corruption investigation that is not going so well. The investigators themselves, by the way, are using underhanded tactics to bring Netanyahu down. So it's tit for tat on both sides. And he is bearing the weight of that deviousness just as Trump is in the U.S. The difference, however, is that Netanyahu may actually be guilty of the allegations against him. This does not justify the way the investigation is being handled, though. It does, however, add another dimension to Netanyahu's recent heightened war rhetoric. And if you want more information on how that investigation is being handled, I've provided you with three links to some very good articles about that. The Atlantic article continues in the vein of what would happen if various scenarios come to pass. Yet there is nothing of intelligence evidence as I am pointing out repeatedly. It goes on to compare the situation in Iraq under Saddam Hussein with Iran today, suggesting that perhaps the West should engage Iran in war as it did in Iraq. The Atlantic continues, along with turning a blind eye to Iranian aggression, the United States has also provoked it. Speaking of the situation under the Obama rather administration, Iran has exploited the profits and legitimacy of the nuclear deal to dominate great swaths of the Middle East and surround Israel with missiles. With the expiration of the treaty's sunset clauses, Iran could then break out, making hundreds of nuclear weapons while deterring Israeli preemption. But if that was the Iranian hope, 
Its aspirations were destroyed overnight by President Trump's decision to pull out of the deal and reimpose sanctions. Faced with a collapsing economy, the regime had two painful options. Either enter into talks with Trump under conditions the Iranians find humiliating, or else initiate hostilities, first in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, and if that fails, against Israel. Turning to action, the regime must hope, will prove to the United States that without sanctions relief and a renewed nuclear treaty, Iran can plunge the entire region into chaos. Well, there is a problem with stirring up this much anti-Iran sentiment against a perceived enemy who is not at the moment doing anything more than it usually does. Sometimes the enemy sees these things not as political and monetary ploys, but as provocations. Daniel 11.40 says, And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. Well, that king of the south being Israel, pushing at the king of the north, Iran, that word push there is nagach, and it means literally to butt with horns. Basically, nagach means to provoke until war breaks out. Thus, the warning by Michael Oren, designed to manipulate the Israeli public to keep Netanyahu in office, to justify funneling money to the military so that it can then be funneled to the diaspora ministry, and keep the IDF ready for imminent war, could backfire in Netanyahu's face. In fact, According to OilPrice.com, Netanyahu strongly hinted last month at the possibility of an Israeli preemptive military strike against Iran. So Netanyahu wants to send a preemptive strike to Iran. This is not Iran sending a preemptive strike to Israel. No, it's the other way around. And Netanyahu has been hinting at that for a couple of months. Listen to this report. The current focus of aggression in the Middle East is the Iranian regime in Tehran. Iran is striving to tighten its grip on Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and the Gaza Strip. Boy, I can't talk today. It is constantly arming its metastasis with dangerous weapons and is attacking freedom of navigation and international shipping routes. It downed a big U.S. UAV. It launched a crude and unprecedented attack on Saudi Arabia's oil field. It repeatedly exceeds its own arrogance. Iran threatens to wipe us off the map. It says explicitly, Israel will disappear. Time and again, it tries to attack us. So we must stand ready to protect ourselves from the danger. That is what Netanyahu had to say. Whenever Israel is challenged and its security is threatened, Netanyahu asserted, we always remember and apply the basic rule that guides us. Israel will defend itself on its own in the face of every threat. 
The IDF is prepared to preempt any threat defensively and offensively with its overwhelming power in weaponry and spirit. The article continues, This was not the first time in recent days that Netanyahu had raised the specter of a war with Iran, including the prospect of Israeli preemption. Netanyahu has been warmongering ever since he lost the last Israeli election. Two weeks before, on September 26, 2019, Netanyahu spoke during the New Year's toast at the IDF General Staff Forum. He warned the IDF High Command of gathering clouds and rising security challenges. This was right after he lost the election, but he was saying these things before the election. Israel's proven capacity to simultaneously perform multiple missions is about to be challenged as never before, he observed. Hitherto, we have navigated affairs boldly and responsibly in several arenas, at times simultaneously, but not so far in a comprehensive confrontation. Oil.com goes on to analyze Netanyahu's recent rhetoric from the military viewpoint. And this, by the way, is a valid way to make such an analysis. However, no one is analyzing his war fomenting as a motive for the money funneling, diaspora agenda, or temple building. And this article says Netanyahu's audacity and proactiveness stems from two major developments. Official Jerusalem did not conceal its disappointment from the U.S. about its U.S. military abandonment of Kurdish fighters in northern Syria coming on the heels of the U.S. inaction in the Persian Gulf. But the U.S. has not left Syria. Yet Netanyahu continues the rhetoric as if Israel is being left all alone. Not only has the U.S. not left Syria, but is now in a race with Russia for dominance there, according to Debka.com. Listen to this. A large influx of U.S. troops is entering northeastern Syria this month to counter new Russian plans. This step follows several somersaults on Syria by President Donald Trump since his March 20th decision to withdraw the U.S. from that country. Thousands of words of condemnation landed on the White House on October 13 when U.S. Defense Secretary Mark Esper announced the decision to withdraw U.S. forces from northeastern Syria. The administration was accused of deserting the U.S.-allied Kurds, the core of the Syrian Democratic Forces, which defeated ISIS and opening the door for Iran to surge across the Iraqi-Syrian border. However... Thorough investigation by Debka Files military and intelligence sources have uncovered a totally different reality. While substantial U.S. forces were indeed withdrawn from their Syrian bases to Iraq with masses of equipment, U.S. troop reinforcements have been pouring in and continue to arrive in northeastern Syria. Not only were existing bases not abandoned, but new positions are being set up, including one or more new U.S. air bases. U.S. forces are, moreover, 
taking over Syria's oil and gas fields after the SDF moved in. This confirms Trump's behind-the-scenes warmongering and removes Netanyahu's objection that Israel has to defend itself by itself. He has the ulterior motives spoken of earlier, and this constant yammering may provoke an Iranian response that Israel cannot handle, as the scripture predicts. Ulterior motives, hidden agendas, are what usually makes a man start a war. There are so many ulterior motives going on with the U.S. and Israel in the Middle East. It is hard to see them all and to unravel those that we can see. However, in the meantime, Iran has reopened its Fordo uranium enrichment facility. It also has unveiled a kit that appears to convert unguided surface-to-surface rockets into guided weapons. Also, Iranian-backed militias fired eight missiles towards Israel's Golan Heights and Gaza during Netanyahu's election speech in Ashkelon in September, and this week has threatened the U.S. and Israel again. Let me reiterate, I am not saying Iran is not a threat, or even that it is not an imminent threat. These threats are real. But so are the many ways that men can use such threats to their own political and religious advantage. I am not the only one that's making this point. This J-Post article shares my sentiment. It says, Every day or so, another government official or IDF officer warns that Israel is on the brink of a massive war. On Tuesday, it was Major General Aharon Haleva's turn. Head of the IDF's Operations Directorate, Haleva said that the threat from Iran is not fear-mongering. All signs indicate that the next year has the potential to be negative from a security perspective, he told a group of officials from the Treasury Ministry. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu mentions Iran in almost every speech now. And then there was Michael Oren, Netanyahu's former deputy minister and ambassador to the U.S., who published an article in The Atlantic this week with a doomsday forecast. In a future war with Iran, he warned, Israel will be physically raised, will be bled economically and paralyzed. Well, let me stop right there and just say... That's kind of exactly what the book of Daniel says. Well, not kind of. I was just being sarcastic. Let's get back to the J-Post article. All of the above does sound scary, the article says. And the constant beating of war drums in Israel has many people joking about going on an extended vacation until the quote-unquote situation, as Israelis refer to it, calms down once again. The problem is that while these warnings might all be right and genuine, they also might be wrong and exaggerated. The IDF is genuinely concerned that Iran will try to attack Israel the way it bombed the Aramco oil refinery in Saudi Arabia two months ago with cruise missiles and killer drones. 
This has the defense establishment on edge, and I think rightfully so. It's forced to consider not only how it will defend itself, but how also it will respond to such an attack. Due to the ongoing political stalemate rather in Israel, though, it is impossible to know how real this threat is. Right there, J-Post makes my point. When Netanyahu warns about Iran, that helps him create public pressure on blue and white to enter a unity government while accepting his conditions. He has an interest to play up threats. When Haliva meets with officials from the finance ministry's budget department, it is also difficult to know what is true and what isn't. The IDF is hoping to get an increased budget for the coming year. It wants to buy more planes, more missile ships, and get a larger piece of the state budget pie, convincing the country's accountants and economists that their lives are in danger can only help. For this reason, it is time IDF Chief of Staff Lieutenant General Aviv Kokhavi speak up and do so publicly. Until now, Kokhavi has stayed quiet and out of the spotlight. A few weeks ago, the IDF spokesman Brigadier General Hidei Zilberman released a quote from Kokhavi that all of Israel's fronts are fragile and could deteriorate, but that was it. Nothing about the nature of the threats, how urgent they are, and whether the politicians' use of the security situation was sincere or not. A number of government officials have expressed disappointment with Kokhavi and his silence. After almost a year in his role, it is time for Kokhavi to speak up and lay down his own moral guidelines. Israelis have a right to know what is really happening, and Kokhavi is the one who needs to tell them. Well, I think Kokhavi knows Netanyahu is warmongering, gathering allies like Oren for warmongering, and is using the Iran threat for his own political and religious purposes, and this is why Kokavi is remaining quiet. Iran is not making imminent moves against Israel yet. Now let's turn our attention to a very important issue over Russia. In other war news, the Times of Israel is reporting that the Russian military has reportedly obtained one of Israel's most advanced air defense missiles from the David Sling battery, raising the possibility that Russia could quickly figure out how to defeat a cutting-edge system designed to destroy ballistic missiles in flight and share that with the U.S. and Israeli foes like Iran. Oh, maybe that's how Iran will defeat Israel. A Chinese news site reported that the David Sling missile landed intact in Israel after failing to hit Syrian rockets in July of 2018 and was taking to, taken to Moscow for examinations. And by the way, this is a good reason for them not to be doing preemptive strikes in Syria. Israel and the United States have both asked Russia to return the missile, 
Details of the report were not confirmed by Russia or the IDF, which says it does not comment on foreign reports. Now let's take a look at something that's going on in Syria. The U.S. guarding Syria's oil got an uptick this week. The commander of the Pentagon-backed Syrian Democratic Forces signed off on a plan to help Donald Trump protect Syria's oil fields. Despite an ongoing Turkish incursion, the group has lobbied the United States to stop. Though the United States plans to stay in eastern Syria at bases in Green Village and Deir Ezzor City with hundreds of troops, it's not clear what the American role will be in managing or extracting the oil, though Trump has said the United States would keep Syrian oil. A senior State Department official told reporters today the fields are being worked by the local authorities but added that the agency had no guidance to do anything with the oil. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan finally confirmed that he will visit President Trump at the White House next week about the situation. And now let's talk a little bit more about Kabad this week. Kabad is growing and increasing its outreach to diaspora Jews. On Thursday last week, Montenegro in the Balkans appointed its first residing chief rabbi. At the opening ceremony of the Mar Conference, a program that focuses on Jewish continuity in the Balkans hosted by the Jewish community itself, Rabbi Ari Edelkopf was appointed the country's permanent chief rabbi position. Edelkopf and his wife Connie began serving the country's 500 Jews two years ago. Wow, Montenegro has 500 Jews. Therefore, there needs to be a Chabad chief rabbi. Montenegro's President Dukanovic pronounced Edelkov the rabbi of the entire country, not just the Jewish community, Edelkopf spoke of the threat of anti-Semitism during his speech at the ceremony. It is time. Yahweh is once again extending his hand to the house of Judah to return home, to stop rejecting the land of their inheritance. You know, for many years before World War II, there were calls from Palestine, and Israel was called Palestine at that time, but there were calls from Palestine or to return home. Most did not, and six million of them died horrible deaths after living horrible lives in concentration camps. But the house of Judah, as a whole, still rejects Yahweh. Those who have returned now seek to selfishly keep Israel only for the house of Judah. This also is wrong, as I have said many times, and the anti-Semitism spoken of by Edelkopf in Montenegro is a real phenomenon. It is, it's just that it's not a scriptural definition, a biblical doctrine. Yahweh simply calls hatred of his people one of the reasons for his coming vengeance against the nations. So anti-Semitism is a worldly definition 
that has had disastrous outcomes for the Jews. But Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's and Kabad's outreach to the diaspora is a double-sided coin. The Jews need gathering. That's one side of the coin. The other side is that Ephraim needs gathering too, but the Jews won't allow Ephraim to return because of Yeshua. Therefore, the return will continue to be a mess until Yeshua comes, and in the meantime, not all Jews will return, no matter how much pressure they get from the diaspora ministry and Kabad. Here's what Yahweh said about the house of Israel in Ezekiel 20, verses 33 and 34. As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out, he's pouring his fury out on the house of Israel. He says, will I rule over you? And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries where you've been scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. You know, the Lord's going to be angry when he has to do this. He's going to have to drag back the house of Israel, kicking and screaming. His people are even now refusing to come out of Babylon. This situation does not only apply to the house of Israel, it applies also to the house of Judah, who even now are not heeding the call to return to the land of their inheritance. So, the fact that Kabad is growing and creating chief rabbis is a call for the Jews to return, but it also speaks to Judaism's agenda for the nations. Now, let me draw your attention to some news about Temple Mount. Wrongfully, the Jordanian government will not allow Jews to pray on Temple Mount. The fear is that if you give Jews the right to pray, they will want more and more until they get full control of Temple Mount. You know, give an inch and the Jews will take a mile. The failure of the Waqf to see that preventing the Jews from praying on their holy mountain that is in Judah's territory is driving a backlash that will end up with the Jews in full control of Temple Mount. So what the Waqf doesn't want is exactly what the Waqf is going to get. Here is a Breaking Israel News article to start this analysis of recent Temple Mount tensions. The Jerusalem Magistrates Court handed down a decision ordering the Israeli police to compensate three teenagers, two of them minors, uh, 20,000 shekels each on Tuesday. Back in 2017, the three young men tried to hang a sign on Holocaust Memorial Day when the Temple Mount was closed to Jewish pilgrims due to the fact that it also was a Muslim holiday. The two religions holidays do sometimes coincide. The teenagers were treated violently during their arrest by the police. Well, this decision for compensation will be only the first reversal of police activities against the Jews. However, there is a caveat to this decision that could escape our attention, but which will play into the coming fight for Temple Mount. And here it is from the article. The police decision to close the Temple Mount to Jews that day was reasonable and correct. 
This is not discussed in this case file and is irrelevant, Judge Ilan Sela stated in her ruling. The plaintiff's right to protest this decision, which lies at the heart of freedom of speech and the argument that it could have sparked outrage, does not justify the arrest. This case has been turned into a matter of free speech, but it does not address the problem of two religions sharing the same piece of real estate. Therein lies the root of the problem. Islam and Judaism cannot exist together in Jerusalem. Thus there will necessarily be a war at some point. As more Jews plan activities such as weddings, continue trying to pray, and have American politicians and prominent Jewish figures calling for the temple to be built, the greater the likelihood of war. And one way the Jews are gaining their ground is through wedding ceremonies on Temple Mount. Weddings are usually a public affair, says this one article, even though it is really about the couple. It is expressing your love for your wife in public, and the Jews are being prevented from expressing their love for God in public. Ascending to the Temple Mount is not simply an act of devotion. It is an act of conquering the land of Israel, no less than a soldier. Okay, so now we have civilians taking on the facade of being soldiers. Can you see how Temple Mount has gone from being a political problem to a religious one? More wars are started over religion than anything else. The article continues, If only Arabs are present on Temple Mount, then we have lost the war. By acting on our ownership of the site, we also bring to play our values like freedom of religion. As long as the Arabs express their presence as if they own the site, their values will rule and they will be the only ones allowed to pray there. In October, conservative pundit Ben Shapiro called for the building of a synagogue on the Temple Mount days after he was kicked off of the holy site for reciting prayers. Shapiro visited Jerusalem and recorded a special podcast over the Western Wall Plaza and dedicated the beginning of his show to a segment on the Temple Mount and the Jewish connection to the holy site. The Western Wall is thought by many to be the holiest site in Judaism. It's not. The Temple Mount is the holiest site in Judaism, said Shapiro. And I agree with Shapiro, by the way. The Western Wall is actually a retaining wall for the platform where the temple stood. It's kind of weird, he says. We're actually praying at the retaining wall, not for the actual temple itself. There was another wall that surrounded the temple. It's sort of like praying at the fence of a parking lot that contains the building you actually care about. He's, he's actually right about that. That's where the Holy of Holies used to stand in the Beit HaMikdash, the temple. It is the rock where Abraham, according to the Bible, was about to sacrifice Isaac. It is also the site where Jacob, when he had the dream of the ladder going to heaven, was promised the land. 
It is a deeply important place at the root of Jewish spirituality, and Jewish spirituality lies at the root of Christian spirituality and Muslim spirituality. Turning to the political issues revolving around Israel's capital city, Shapiro called for the city to remain undivided under Israeli sovereignty. Jerusalem needs to remain unified and in Israeli hands. Bottom line, he said, You see around me a thriving city. This was not a thriving city in 1966. In 1966, this was a closed city. The Jordanians were in charge of it. Jews could not pray at the Western Wall. All of this was closed to Jews and largely to Christians as well. That changed in 1967 during the Six-Day War. And therein lies the encroachment of the Jews with regard to Jerusalem. Now listen, I use the word encroachment with caution because this is Judah's city and Yahweh chose to put his name there. So I am not using this term in a negative way, but in the way in which the Jews have taken back their rightful territory. And they had the entire city under their control in 1967. And there they were talked into giving it back by the UN and US and other nations. A couple of years ago, Israel took control of the entire city again and Temple Mount again because of killings that happened there. Once again, their UN overseers talked them into the returning control back over to Jordan. I asked then and will ask now the same question. When will the house of Judah finally step up to their responsibility to take control of Jerusalem and Temple Mount and keep it. Saying this is a mixed bag because I know what they will do with Jerusalem because I've read the scriptures. They will turn her into mystery Babylon. Yet I also know this is what must happen and therefore I am in favor of Yahweh's will. He won't return until Mystery Babylon and many other prophecies are fulfilled. Their reticence to take back their city is prolonging Yeshua's return. Shapiro further says, When people talk about dividing Jerusalem, they're insane. They're just crazy. You can't divide the old city. It is entirely cohesive. We walked over there earlier this week, he said, and then we were kicked off for the crime of mumbling prayers, which apparently is not allowed formally because of the walk. Shapiro also called for the building of a synagogue or prayer space for Jews on the Temple Mount. It is absurd that you are not allowed to openly pray up there. Jews should obviously be allowed to openly pray up there. Muslims not only are allowed to openly pray up there, they have the Dome of the Rock and a mosque up there. In fact, I think there's a strong case to be made that Jews should be building if they can't build the temple because there's the Dome of the Rock right there. 
they should at least build a synagogue up there so you can have regularized prayers. If Muslims are able to build a school on one end, which they have done, it seems to me the Jews should be able to build a synagogue in a space that is roughly the size of three football fields. Well, in fact, Jews have been praying on Temple Mount since 1971, but only rarely and secretly. According to Breaking Israel News, there was a report circulating in Arab media that claimed the Jewish prayer services were held for the first time at a building that's referred to as the Tonkazia's School, rather, on Temple Mount. The building is reported to be a border police station and a synagogue for soldiers. However, what they do not realize is that Jews have been praying in that room every Yom Kippur since 1971. An investigation by Breaking Israel News discovered back then approval was issued by the defense minister who received the request from the chief of staff who received the request from the IDF's former chief rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Goren Zell. In Hebrew, the room is called the Machkamah. Half of the Machkamah sits on the Temple Mount. The other half is off of the holy site. The room is inside a complex that overlooks the western wall but breaches into the Temple Mount's territory. It is located between the gate of the chain to the north and western wall to the south. The room hosts two Minyamin prayer services a year. One is on Yom Kippur and the other is on the 9th of Av. On the 9th of Av there are two prayer services. One is led by a private yeshiva and the other is led by Rami Goren, the son of Rabbi Shlomo Goren Zael. Every year, more people have asked to join the prayer service. So, to summarize, there are two wars going on in Israel. One is being fomented using Iran as the excuse by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in his fight to fulfill the election, military, diaspora, and investigation distraction agendas, and the continued and increasingly tense struggle for Temple Mount. That's it for this Beast Watch News update. This is Kimberly Rogers Brown signing off. Click over to BeastWatchNews.com for full comprehensive coverage of all the headlines fulfilling end of days Bible prophecy.